This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Eric Hansen. We are recording this interview at my home uh, in the Roxborough neighborhood of Philadelphia on the 8th of May 2015, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, Eric. Hello. How are you, Joe? I am well. Thank you for coming out here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, since you've heard some of the interviews, uh, you know that customarily we will begin with you in small form. Um, so where is it that you were born and when? I was born in 1978 in upstate New York, actually on the West Point uh, military, military facility, mm -hmm. um, originally from the Hudson Valley, New York, where I was born and raised, uh, moved down to Philadelphia in 2007 and have lived in South Philadelphia ever since. Very good. Uh, why were you born at West Point? Uh, my father's retired military, so uh, it was free medical. Uh, right, which good. hey, nothing, nothing wrong with that. So, right. so he was in the army. He was he was uh, navy. Okay, and he was he retired. Uh, unfortunately, he was in a bad accident when he was in the military. So they retired him as he was in a hospital bed for a few years and wasn't of much use to the military. So they honorably honorably uh, retired him, and mm -hmm. he. Uh, kept those benefits for life so that, that's all good. my childhood I, he never paid for medical care for me or my brother so that's nothing good. wrong with that no no absolutely not <laughs> what then brought you to Philadelphia um, I was living in a college town in a punk house a place called New Paltz New York and I was out of school and just working full-time and a lot of my housemates um, were starting to get ready to graduate and a lot of them were planning on going to New York City and I didn't want to be the old guy living in a college town forever. Mm -hmm. uh, so I basically, about a year before everybody graduated, I started looking for different avenues to go. And at the time, my girlfriend and I uh, wanted to move to a city. Um, New York was very expensive, as it still is. Yes. So we decided to do Philadelphia because it was a short drive back to New York to visit our family. Had you experienced the city before? We had a friend who moved down here a few months prior, um, so he came down to visit and do a weekend and just kind of took in some of the some of the sites, quote unquote, uh, South Street and Walnut and you know the things that we didn't Did you know see any. The Liberty Bell, of course. Yeah, uh, you know we didn't know any better um, what what was cool and what wasn't. You know I'd been here a handful of times for shows through the years, but uh, not a whole lot. So basically, it was really the cost effectiveness of Philadelphia that brought us here. Uh, and a few of the guys I was playing music with also were looking for a new place to go. So we kind of decided to make Philadelphia home and mm -hmm. been here ever since and absolutely love it. What were your initial impressions of the city? When I first moved here, um, I was shocked at how convenient it was to get around. Mm -hmm. um, as somebody who doesn't own an automobile, I was very into the idea of a bikeable city. Um, cost effectiveness was great. I was originally living in the graduate hospital area, um, and it was super affordable. Could get a row home for you know eight nine hundred bucks a month with multiple bedrooms, um, with plenty of space to set up a recording studio in the basement and to have you know the room to do the record label, which I do, uh, FDH Records, as well as uh, you know a little bit of patch of of grass in the backyard and it just just really seemed like a, a cool place and, and an inviting place uh, mm -hmm. you know being somebody from New York was used to the cold shoulder of New York and Philadelphia seemed gritty but still friendly at the same time mm -hmm. so that that's kind of what brought me here 
but there's still a lot of Italians in your part of South Philadelphia. Where I am, it's it's very uh, mishmashy. Um, we're right on basically on the corner of Sixth and Mifflin, and it's a very working class neighborhood. Basically, in that part of South Philly, between I would say from fourth to about seven, uh, it's a lot more working class and mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely still see a strong Italian presence. Uh, between second and fourth, and then I would say probably from about eighth over to broad, although Pashyunk is really booming right now and gentrifying a lot of that neighborhood. But there's definitely still a strong South Philly Italian vibe. You know, the mummers going strong and, Mm -hmm. you know, the the old neighborhood pride, which is cool. It's cool to be a part of of that. It's cool that um, South Philadelphia has maintained a lot of South Philadelphia pride while it's still very up and coming at the same time. So yeah, yeah. it's it's a great place, and I, I absolutely love it. Going back a little bit to, to your youth, prior to punk, what were your interests, or what were you like? Uh, before punk rock, I was always interested in music. Um, I My father and mother grew up with the stereo constantly on. My mom was always into modern music. Uh, myself being a child of the late 70s, uh, she was listening to a lot of stuff like The Cars and Cheap Trick. Mm-hmm. Um, those are two bands that I give a lot of credit to developing my music taste. Uh, my father was very open-minded as far as music's concerned. He was very into a lot of doo-wop, um, some rock and roll, but he you know, he was pretty open-minded. So myself, personally, I grew up with a brother, um, was very into sports in my early years, was never very good at sports, but I always wanted to play baseball and was never really any good at it. Um, was somebody who was, was pretty to myself. Um, I went to a new high school uh, the first year, first day of high school, I was in a new school district, so the high school years were pretty rough on me. Um, prior to that, was very into. Was always a collector. Was very into comic books and baseball cards. Um, very into, um, you know, just just kind of like shutting myself in my room and and listening to music and whatnot. Um, and being that I started in high school, not knowing anybody, a bit of a loner. That's when I really started to get into punk rock. Um, and it was more about I'm gonna do what I want. I'm going to listen to what I want. I don't need to wear the, at that time it was Jenkos and, <laughs> and, you know, big Z Cavaricis and whatever yeah, other. You avoided that then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I tried, you know, yeah. I mean, young teen, teenage years and preteen years can be pretty, uh, pretty grueling on what you conform to. But I always, uh, you know, lived a little bit on the outside of it. And luckily we had a really great, uh, radio station in the Hudson Valley Vassar college, uh, had 91.7 WVKR, and I grew up with a, a radio show, show called The Hurdy Gurdy Show, mm-hmm. and it was just a great uh, pop-punk show, um, and, you know, I, I had gotten my hands on a Ramon CD, you know, early, much earlier than that, but that's kind of what started really moving me in that world um, and getting involved in punk rock was The Hurdy Gurdy Show and hearing bands, a lot of Lookout Records bands, a lot of the, the queers and... Uh, Screeching Weasel and and The Lookouts and Op Ivy and kind of grew from there. Um, In that day and age, it was much tougher to discover new music. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, now uh, I have a a sister who's 17 years old and she has it a lot easier than than I did growing up. She can look anything up on YouTube and have instant gratification. Myself, it was was a lot of uh, 
oh, this guy's wearing this band shirt. I'm going to go check out their CD. Or yeah. uh, this band thanked this band. You know, I, perfect example is Operation Ivy. I got into Operation Ivy because Green Day did a silly cover of an Operation Ivy song on Kerplunk. So it was like, oh, I'm going to go check this out and fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's a little off subject. But, uh, you know, prior to the punk years, I would say I was I was always a collector, always a bit of an introvert. Um, and always, you know, a little bit on the outside and, and, a, and a loner. Mm-hmm. Did punk draw you into a new new circle of people, or did it, did it make you in high school even more out there? It made me a little bit more out there. Uh, the part of New York where I grew up had a lot of... It was in the... I graduated from high school in 96, so we're talking mid-90s. And at that point, the part of the Hudson Valley where I lived, there was a huge scene of... Um, thugcore, the the really like tough hip hop sort of E Town concrete sounding sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and to me, I was never really a huge fan of it. I liked heavy music, but I didn't like the the gang mentality that came along with it. Um, so for myself, I took more of the punk route, and I was starting to get into punk rock, and I would say probably like ninety two, ninety three. And was very much an outsider when that happened. And of course, in 94, you know, you started to see bands like Green Day broke. And all of a sudden, I was cool for having blue hair, where two years earlier, the same kids were beating me up for having blue hair. So uh, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a weird time to get into punk rock and to be flying that flag. Um, but, you know, that in high school, I would say it was really not until after high school where I found other kids with common tastes and started playing in bands and going to shows and really identifying with a punk scene mm-hmm. at that point. Right. Was there an active DIY type of punk scene in that area? Not so much the town I was in. I was living in a town called Wappingers Falls and I didn't know that across the river in Orange County, New York, there was a very strong punk scene. And what really started to turn me on to it was there was a record shop that opened, a place called Big Boy Records. And Big Boy Records was an all-punk and hardcore record store. And when they opened, it really just kind of drew me in that there was a place that could exist that sold vinyl records in 1993. Six, mm-hmm. 1997. Yeah, because it was well before vinyl became cool again. Exactly. Yeah. And that's and that's kind of what got me going on vinyl is, you know, my parents had given me a stack of their old records and um, I would thrift store buy records going to the flea market. I remember the first piece of vinyl I ever bought. I was 12 years old and I bought Black Sabbath Masters of Reality on vinyl. And I got home and I had a, a turntable I bought from Goodwill or something like that, paid $10 for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know that I needed a phono preamp, so I got home and couldn't, I could listen. I remember laying on the floor and listening to the up needle. needle. Yeah. <laughs> really killer sounding. So, uh, so yeah, when, when Big Boy opened its doors, it became not only a punk record store, but it was a hangout. It was a place where a lot of people could connect and... Um, share, you know, different bands that they liked and, you know, just just really a sense of community. It was the first time that I, I felt that sense of community. And around that time, I started my first band, which was a band called Murder Shift. Um, what was Murder Shift like? Murder Shift was a, it was a, it was a fast punk band with hardcore parts but we were sort of mocking the tough guy hardcore that was going on the first song that we 
quote unquote wrote was a hardcore cover of the DuckTales theme song. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to cover the meow mix, meow 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 meow. Um, we used to uh, we played a lot of lot of really silly punk rock. Um, we were really using lyrics as a way to offend people more so just because we could and we wanted to push buttons and where um, the buttons pushed did you get oh, the reaction you wanted oh absolutely um absolutely um but that band murder shift was was you know it was my first band and uh we we were active from i would say 98 until 2000 and three um that was a pretty long time yeah yeah i did move away for about a year and moved to phoenix arizona and the band kind of wasn't active at that point but otherwise we were active straight through and uh the guys that i i played in murder shipped with i actually played music with up until we actually still are releasing music uh the band doctor scientist that i was in was three quarters of murder shift so that came after that came after yes Mm -hmm. so uh you know, Murder Shift was kind of my introduction to the the world of playing music and really started me down that path and introduced me to a punk community um, up in Orange County, New York, which was a very diverse scene, but there was a lot of common goal. It was it was all about just, just putting your band out there and, you know, good people and, you know, everybody was kind of doing their own thing, but at the same time it all made sense and it all meshed really well. Were the shows mixed in terms of the styles of the bands performing together or were they, you know, tightly separated from, you know, this type of bands playing this show and this type of thing? No, it was, it was pretty much every weekend there was, there was a local show going on and the, the lineups would vastly change one week to the next and there was no sort of... Uh, blocking out a band because they didn't fit the sound it was very open-ended um the perfect example is actually if you go back to the first record that i released on fdh records uh it was a record called true horror and i started fdh records because there was uh my band murder shift and a few other bands who were all doing different styles of punk rock and we wanted to put out some vinyl and showcase what was going on in our scene that was all very unique, but all worked together. So it was my band, Murder Shift. It was a band called the Antisocials, which was uh, uh, an oi band, for lack of better explanation, who had recently broken up, but uh, they had a session that they never released. Uh, there was a band called Troublebound, which was a street punk band, which is still active today. And then there was a organ-driven, garagey punk band called The Emergency. So all four bands came together. We all brought something completely different to the table. Mm-hmm. And we said, hey, this is a really cool way for us to get our scene a little bit of cred where we all can, you know, put seven minutes of music out there and show what we're doing but mm-hmm. not have it out of place. Right, right. What does the FDH stand for? Um, FDH is what what me and my buddies at the time, the Murder Shift guys and a couple other friends used to call our our crew, the FDH crew. Uh, It's one of those things that's kind of lost its meaning through the years. Is the F a fuck? Uh, It could could be. I often tell people when they ask me what FDH means, for people tell me what FDH means. Like, I ask for, what do you think FDH means? I have no fucking... I mean, I always assume the F is like a fuck, duh... Something, well, yeah, but I, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. and it's open to, to interpretation. But maybe um, it's just my rotten mind. It, t- it takes every <laughs> effort turns it into a fuck. You know, it could be fantastical. Yeah, no, we um, 
we were from a town called Fishkill, New York. And, um, you know, FDH is one of those things that means a lot of different things to different people. And I have an FDH tattoo on my arm that I got before the record label started. And uh, very commonly when people ask me what FDH stands for, I'll tell them uh, Fishkill Destruction Hooligans. Um, are you being disingenuous? I mean, you can't just tell the person like what it actually is. It something really offensive that you uh, don't it, want people to know. It, it's it's a bit offensive. It's a bit uh, it's a bit rough around the edges and not true to who I am as a person. So I, I tend not to go back to the original description. And I figured there was something a little. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know we could, it's, we could leave that alone. It's it's silly childish stuff and uh, basically. It's, it's turned into much more. Um, when I got this tattoo on my arm, it was my first tattoo. And when I started the record label, it was, it was well, I have this tattoo for the rest of my life. And, you know, some of the FDH guys are playing on this record. So, FDH Records. All right, cool. Let's do it. So, you consider ALF Records? Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my ALF tattoo has another ALF underneath it. It's a cover-up of an ALF tattoo. Oh, nice. So, it's pretty... pretty First off, didn't turn out so well. Not not so great, but the same guy did an excellent job many years later. Yeah, that app looks not really nice. Yeah, yeah. I hope he doesn't eat my cats. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I won't. I'll keep that to the yeah. cats on my arm. Uh, so FDH, um, uh, you still do? I yes. You still, and you have. Yes, I started. My original venture into doing a record label was in the '90s. Um, in the '90s, I did a cassette tape label called Illmatic Jerk uh, Records. And Illmatic Jerk released a handful of, of bands, uh, never really got its feet off the ground, um, talked about doing a lot of stuff and just kind of faded away, fizzled out. Um, so when I did FDH, FDH was originally going to be something that I did the one release with. Um, after I released the one release, my good friend Jeff, who was also the guitarist in Murder Shift, um, he was getting involved in a lot of experimental music, a lot of free jazz and improv noise and wanted to start releasing things um so basically i i made it a community label i was like hey you know anybody in fdh that wants to put something out go for it so from 2003 when i put out the first release till 2007 uh jeff as well as a guy named tim who was in a band called mondar um, kind of took the reins and, and ran with FDH, and I was not very involved at all. They were doing a lot of cassette tapes, uh, hand-dubbed in their bedroom, and a lot of uh, CDR releases that were very experimental at the time. And when I moved to Philadelphia, um, I kind of had in mind that I wanted to really get back to uh, releasing the, the stuff that I was listening to, not just my friends' bands, but the bands I was listening to all over the world. Um, and I'm, I've always been a big uh, synth punk guy, and I've always been a big uh, power pop guy, big garage rock guy. So I just started trying to put out records in that vein, and uh, I was lucky enough to have been harassing Jay Riotard from the Riotards, Lost Sounds, uh, Angry Angles for years at, about putting out a record for him. And he was, at that time, his... Uh, solo record blood visions was was going viral mm -hmm. um people were were freaking out about it and he was getting lots of major label interest and i asked to put out the follow-up record and he basically said that he couldn't do that because he was working on some serious stuff and, and had ended up signing with matador to release those records 
Um, but he had this project that he had recorded that he never really did much besides a CDR with and introduced me to Terravisions. And it, it just kind of snowballed from there. I put out the Terravisions record and it really kind of put me on a lot of people's radars. Um, and then I had a little bit more of a light to stand on and started reaching out to other bands that I loved and just kind of kept going from there. And since 2008, I've been more or less just exclusively releasing vinyl and uh, at, at a pretty good rate. I would say on average, I'm releasing now probably about five records a year, but 2008, I think I released something like 14 pieces yeah. of vinyl, yeah. which is, you know, while managing a full-time job yeah, as well yeah. is pretty tough to do. Are you using distributors or are you shipping all of this yourself? Is it all coming directly from you? A lot of it comes directly from me. I do work with, uh, with a few distributors. Uh, the largest I work with is Revolver USA out in California. Um, they do distribution for me, um, but not huge numbers of distribution. I would say on average they're taking... 10 to 20 percent of a pressing of a record mm -hmm. um and distributing that for me i also work very close with a label called p trash records in germany who is a phenomenal record label uh releasing a lot of great punk and hardcore and power pop and synth punk um we've done a slew of co-releases together but he also has a phenomenal distro over in europe so he distributes a lot of my records in europe for me um and then I do, I do have a lot of mail order customers. I have a lot of loyal customers that come back to me time and time again because I've, I've always believed that vinyl should be very affordable. Mm -hmm. um, I recently had to raise my prices just based on the, the way that the industry is going. And now for a standard LP, I have to charge about $16 postage paid, which I never really wanted to go over that $15 postage mm -hmm. paid price point. But it's it, you got to do what you got to do, unfortunately. Yeah, but considering you can go to the record store and buy uh, rumors by Fleetwood Mac, the new pressing of it for thirty two dollars or something, where it's the same goddamn record that's in the back of the store for a dollar, you know, oh, in the dollar bin. Oh yeah. But you could buy this one in the front for thirty two dollars. So I mean, it seems you know sixteen post paid, and considering what postage costs, it seems pretty reasonable. Yeah, it's it's always been super important to me. FDH is not something I've, I make money on. Mm -hmm. um, I've been fortunate enough to not have had to put money into FDH records since 2008. It sustained itself. However, I don't take a paycheck out of it. I, I don't make any money doing it. My goal when I put out a record is always just, all right, I need to sell enough of these to fund the next release. Um, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to do so. Of course, there's been some real winners and some, some duds. Um, through the years, but you know that's that's the record business, and it's it's unpredictable. You know, I just try to release what I love, and what I think that my customer base will love. Mm -hmm. um, and and for the most part, I think I do a pretty good job at it. And there's there's records that surprise me. There's records that I think, oh, I'm gonna press 300 of this, and I'll be lucky if I move them, and I'll I'll press 500, and they'll be gone. And there's other things that I think are gonna be huge and just never take off but that's you know that's all part of the game yeah how do you deal with the press these days because over the years press has changed considerably from an actual printed press to now you know probably mostly blogs uh, are you dealing with a lot of music blogs and sending them you know material to review definitely um when i started i was doing a lot of a lot of mailing a lot of shipping out hard copies of records to different blogs and different written printed zines uh, and a lot of that has gone the way of digital. 
I would say the past three years, probably 90% of my PR goes through the digital format. Um, you know, bulk, bulk email server and, you know, I have my list of my places that I send it to. And there are the, the select few that I still send hard copies to. There's the select places that only review hard copies. Um, and I completely understand that. On the other side, being a record label, I get bombarded with digital versions of demos from bands. Mm -hmm. And I have a strict policy that I want a hard copy. And it's not so much that I want to own the hard copy and I want to you know, waste somebody's money sending postage. It's To me, it's if a band isn't motivated enough to get up off the couch and mail me a package, why should I invest $3,000 into them? Right, a seriousness of intent. Exactly. Yeah, because really anybody could make a digital track of anything and therefore, and to take that much of your time, at least if there's a physical product, you know they made that much effort. Exactly, and honestly, I, I probably still, and it's stated on my page for years that I only accept hard demos, and I would say still on average, at least one a day, if not two or three a day, bands are reaching out to me, hey, check out my band camp, hey, check out my band camp. It's probably a bulk emailing. That oh, of course. You know, one of a hundreds on that. Of, of course, and and I understand it because I've I've done some of that myself being in a band. Um, so it's, it's a delicate balance, and there are exceptions to the rule. There's been you know the offshoot band here or there that I've decided to, on a whim, check them out digitally, and and fall in love with it. So, you know, I, I, I try not to be too uh, militaristic with my policies. I try to, you know, leave a little bit of uh, wiggle room there. But mm -hmm. I'm just one guy with a full-time job, a band, a wife, and, you know, multiple record labels. So. But you also have the tape label, the Suicide Bomb. Yes. Uh, so if you could explain what that, that is all about. Absolutely. So I also do a tape label called Suicide Bomb Tapes, and I do that with... Uh, a guy named Steve Firth. Steve is uh, the brains behind the many, many, many successful years of JR's shows down in South Philadelphia, down at 22nd and Passyunk, um, which is defunct probably about a year and a half ago now. Um, Maybe we should insert this in for a second because sure. this is the, you know this was a, a story how, yeah about a year and a half ago yeah yeah absolutely what, what you, if you could just kind of explain the the JR's uh, tale sure absolutely so Steve was uh, the 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 guy Steve worked for JR's uh, and what was JR's JR's like for people it's it's a private bar down in South Philadelphia it's they they call themselves a private club but there's not really a, a membership. Um, it was their way of getting away with letting things like smoking happen in the bar. There was different, you know, loopholes that they could jump through. Um, it was a suffering bar. It was a, a business that uh, a South Philadelphia guy, family owned for many, many years. And I think that uh, they were in a, a state where they were in pretty bad shape for business. And Steve, uh, along with some of his buddies, um, were doing a, a company called Sick Chattel Productions. And uh, through the years, Six Chattel developed a pretty strong relationship with JR's. And the beautiful thing about JR's is it was a little small hole-in-the-wall bar, but they didn't want any door money. Um, so when you did a show, you could collect door money and give all that money to the band, which was really great for a touring band. You know, you didn't have to pay for the PA use. You didn't have to pay a sound guy. Basically, JR's just said, you know, you, nobody's getting free drinks. Everybody's paying for their drinks, but their drinks were cheap. Um, and there's the PA, and you guys run your show. It's got to be over by X time. 
Um, so Steve really stepped up to the plate and was was doing massive amounts of shows there. It kind of became the the unofficial uh, headquarters of South Philadelphia shows for many, many years. And things were going great. It had its ups and its downs just like anything else. It had its great shows and its duds just like anything else. And basically about two years ago, the owner Bobby started getting uh, running into more problems. He started running into problems with um, licensing companies coming in wanting him to pay a fee because bands were going to do cover songs when it was all punk bands doing originals. It's not like people were down there doing Rolling Stones covers. Mm -hmm. Um, So he was running into problems with that. And then he started running into issues with uh, noise. Uh, He had the place pretty well insulated, uh, but he was running into complaints from, I'm guessing, neighbors. uh, And he was starting to get fined for noise complaints and noise violations. Um, It was a struggling business and it just wasn't doing well. And really, the thing that was keeping afloat was was Steve and the JR shows. And Steve was was an unpaid guy. It's Steve was doing this. He would pick up shifts bartending there and make his money that way. Um, he was paid a, a nominal fee to do sound at these shows. Uh, when I say nominal, I mean you know a quarter of what most sound guys are getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he'd spend more than that in the bar most nights. Um, and basically, for whatever reason, he was he was basically managing the bar. And for whatever reason, the owner wanted to start phasing out shows. He wanted to try some some different things and started talking to some different professionals about different avenues he could take the bar in. Um, so basically, himself and Steve uh, had the understanding that it was it was going to be wrapping up at some point. And uh, Steve continued to, to press forward with shows. And basically where the, where the drama started was one night uh, a friend of Bobby, the owner, um, got into an altercation with a female from West Philadelphia, a physical altercation. Um, and I wasn't there, so I can't speak too much on the actual confrontation itself. But from what I understand, it was... Not so much the JR's crowd that started the issue. They were kind of edged on. Um, not to say that, that the JR's guys are good guys, um, but I don't really think they were to blame for this situation. And basically, uh, it escalated, and JR's got a lot of heat, and a lot of it fired back to Steve being the guy who was booking shows. And Steve was outside when the whole situation went down. Steve was always kind of like just the liaison between the actual bar and the the punks. He was the contact. Um, so Steve started getting a lot of a lot of backlash from it. Um, and basically that's when Steve decided that he wanted to throw in the towel. He wanted to, you know, work through the rest of the summer and, and finish out the shows that he had planned. And one day he basically uh, got fired. One day they, they just told him, we're done. Um, you're, you're not doing any more shows. All the shows that are booked here are canceled. Get out of my club. And it was, you know, it was completely unwarranted. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, when you're dealing with an owner of a, of a venue, you know, that's, it's, his, it's his prerogative. You know, yeah, he can yeah. do what he wants with it. Um, so that's basically what happened with JR. Steve... Uh, you know, was was given the axe. And Steve also worked for the, the same family. I, they owned a deli around the corner, which I recently heard they sold. Um, but he worked for the deli during the day and did the shows at night. 
and basically was just one day told get out get out of the deli get out of the the bar and no real reason why they had such animosity towards him after such a long relationship no i I think i think the owner just was was had had enough of noise complaints and of fines and you know, let's face it, the South Philly punks can be a, a pretty intimidating crowd from time to time. They also smell bad. Yeah, yep, exactly. Um, you know, great people down there, but, uh, you know, I can see how it would, would put a negative light to his business if he's trying to grow it. Somebody described the JRs to me as a pseudo-mob bar. Would that strike you as being at all accurate? I, I would say that that's probably not... an. A statement that's too far off. I think that there was a lot of uh, guesswork about what happened in JRs. You know, there was lots of talks about, oh, if you go down in that basement, there's bodies chopped up, and <laughs> I there was not never anything like that. Um, you know, I think that that there was a, a bit of a, a seedy criminal element, seedy criminal Italian element to JR's bar. Uh, I think. I think. Mafia or mob is probably a little bit strong of a word to use, but I can see how it it was clumped into that. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, basically uh, getting back to uh, Suicide Bong, Steve is also the guitar player in my band, Spent Flesh, um, and Steve and I lived together for, for many years and wanted to start a label that was solely dedicated to Philadelphia and the great things that are happening here in our city and not necessarily just in a in a punk scene or a hardcore scene but across the board because there's so many great bands in our city um, and somebody needed to step up the, to the plate and start you know releasing something for them um, so our whole idea was to start uh, suicide bong tapes, which was something that Steve came up with a name for for a release that we co-released on FDH Records, a band called Truth Dealer. And I just thought the name Suicide Bong was too clever not to keep alive. I absolutely so, agree. Yeah, it's just it's just such a great name, so so catchy, um, rolls off the tongue so nice. And we basically decided to to run with it. We had uh, recently recorded a cassette tape for Spent Flesh. Um, and decided to release that. But we didn't want to just release our own band, um, so we reached out to our friends in Nightfall, who are a really great uh, D-beat South Philly band. They actually have a little bit of tie to New Jersey, um, so they're a little bit outside of our, our Philadelphia yeah, New Jersey's rule. okay. But, yeah, exactly. They're, uh, some parts. They're, they're, they're Philadelphia guys, even if, if they do, you know, a couple of them live over in Jersey. They're Philadelphia sure guys, and they're a Philly band. Um, so we basically decided to, to do this, this tape label and release these two tapes. And when we did the tapes, we decided, uh, we still had the, the JR's club as a venue at that point. So we decided it was a really cool idea to do, uh, cassette releases, uh, limited to a hundred copies. Once they're out of print, they're gone. And a great way to get them distributed was to do a $5 show. Uh, when you came to the show, it's going to be all locals and you're going to walk away with a, not only seeing an all locals show, but you're going to walk away with a free cassette tape that we give you at the door when you pay your $5 cover. So it's, you know, $5 show with, you know, a couple bands and a free tape to walk away with. It gets the band some exposure. Uh, it helps us get the tapes out there. You know, we, we keep a chunk of the door money just to cover our cost. Mm -hmm. And then we split the rest between the bands and, uh, We've been doing Suicide Bomb for 
I would say roughly about two years now. We're up to 11 releases and uh, have a couple more in the pipeline. We're actually uh, right now compiling a bunch of Spent Flesh stuff. We just got back from a European tour and recorded a bunch of that. So we're going to put out a live European tour cassette. And we're also uh, anxiously awaiting the new release from Dope Stroke. They are in the process of recording a new... Uh, EP that we'll be releasing. Um, so those are the the two next things. And in a really great pop punk band called uh, Community Service, uh, pop punk, but not just straight up pop punk. They touch on ska, touch on metal parts. They they're kind of all over the place and do some really great stuff. So those are a few of the things we got in the works right you now. You did a massive compilation too. Uh if you want to mention that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when we knew we were, my band was going over to Europe, um, we decided that we were going to Europe, but we wanted to spread some of the Philadelphia sound as well. Um, so we decided to put together a compilation mixtape of all Philadelphia bands that we loved, um, and we wanted to fill up a tape. So the tape production company that we work with, the longest tape they'll give us is 95 minutes. So we said, all right, let's fill this up. Let's give all the bands two minutes, fit as many bands as we can on this thing. Uh, and this is the one re release that we decided to break our rule of 100 copies. We actually did 400 of this cassette tape because we wanted to bring a big stack of these over to Europe with us to promote what's happening in our great city and how diverse it is at the same time. So basically we ended up with 44 bands. Uh, we ended up with... Everything from DB punk to pop punk to uh, synth punk to uh, death metal. I mean, crust, a little bit of something for everyone on this tape. Um, and it was really just our, our way to give a head nod to Philadelphia and be able to bring them over to Europe and sell them for two or three euros a pop, uh, cover our cost, you know, maybe, maybe make a half a euro on it. To put I, th I think that's acceptable. <laughs> yeah, a little little bit of money to put in the van. Um, work is work. Oh, absolutely. But uh, luckily, you know, we, we pressed 400 of this cassette tape, and between the overwhelming response of bands uh, taking copies and us being able to move a ton of them over in Europe, we've actually completely sold out the pressing of 400 cassette tapes. And that just came out in mid... March and now it's May, so it's yeah, been out for less than two months, and we moved 400 cassette tapes. So wow. we we made it happen, which was a little scary when you're you're ordering 400 cassette tapes. You're spending a thousand dollars on cassette tapes in 2015. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> what does the wife think when you have all of these cassettes coming into your home? When when I first started uh, releasing cassette tapes with Steve, uh, she thought I was crazy. She's she's like, I get why you release vinyl, but cassette tapes really and the reality is is that cassette tapes you know in a lot of cases cassette tapes are kind of the new seven inch um you know myself being a lazy guy i don't i don't like seven inches that much because i don't want to get up after a song or two and flip the record <laughs> um cassette tapes are cheap to make um you know you can you can they're very small they're they're compact, so you know a band can be on tour and bring a hundred cassette tapes, and it's not going to take up much space in the van. Um, you know, it's it's cost effective and it, it gets it out there. So it's it's really a great format. Um, I love the fact that there's been a resurgence in cassettes. I don't think it'll get anywhere to the to the level that vinyl is uh, resurfaced to, but it's still it's it's a niche market, and it's it's cool to be able to to be 
be doing it. Yeah, I was surprised to see so much of that out there in the last few years. I buy a lot of black metal, and I was I was really amazed that so many of those bands were putting out these cassette releases, or that there were labels that were purely cassette for that format. Right. Yeah, and, uh, it, and it also it's somewhat infuriating when it wasn't available in other formats, like a digital format, and I'd have to think oh, I got to get out the cassette deck, you know, because I want to hear this weird, you know, Ukrainian black metal band and. They didn't put it out in any other format. They only put out the cassette yeah. tape. And that's that was actually when we started the tape label, that was an important thing to us is that we make deals with all the bands. Hey, we're doing a hundred of this, but we want this to get out there. We have a Bandcamp page. We put it all up so it is out digitally. When you get a cassette tape from us, there's a digital download code inside. So if I hand you a cassette tape because you walked into a show and you don't own a cassette player, I'm going to tell you keep the cassette tape Take the download give code, it to your dad. and yeah, give the cassette to somebody. Somebody out there has got to have a tape player, so give it to somebody. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's always been the mission for us, just for the the tape label to be a stepping stone. Um, if if a band comes around and we put out their cassette tape, and they get an offer for a label to put out the vinyl release, absolutely go for it. Like we just want to help you promote your music. It's not about us having the rights to it or anything like that. Um, so, you know, just getting it out there in another format. But yeah, absolutely. Like the cassette cannot stand alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got, you got to have that at very least in this day and age, that that digital release as well. Um, because let's face it, you know, we all have smartphones and we all love and have gotten spoiled by the convenience of of portable music. Yeah, and you're probably not carrying a Sony Walkman circa 1987 around with you in any public place. It's it's funny when you do. I ha- every time we uh, we order cassette tapes, um, we get a free uh, Walkman sent to us from the tape manufacturing company, and it's it's the cheapest Walkman on the planet Earth. It you know we put batteries in it, and it works for about 15 minutes, and you know it's big and bulky, and it's got horrible headphones, but uh-huh. Um, you know, it's, it is it is something that I use. And one day, I, recently, I was walking to a friend's house and listening to a cassette tape, and I had it clipped on my belt. And this this ten year old kid says, "What kind of iPod is that?" <laughs> and it was it was really kind of neat. Yeah, I see people with portable CD players, and I think, "Oh my god, this is like an Allosaurus is carrying this weird old instrument." Like, what? People still use these things? Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, I remember in the in the '90s going to shows, and my my buddy had a 12 disc CD changer in his car. And, you know, four of us would get in the car, so we'd each bring three CDs, so there'd be 12 CDs, and we put it on full random mode, and it's like, oh my goodness, what's <laughs> going to come on next? We have no idea. Uh, so it's it's crazy that, you know, we've gotten to the point where, you know, you can have 20,000 songs on your phone and, and you know, Stop. has no weight to it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty pretty wild how the technology's changed. Tell me about the Spent Flesh. Uh, how would you describe for an individual who's not heard the band, and it's certainly a unique sound, what the band sounds like? Sure. So so to me, punk rock has always been about pushing limits. It's always been about, punk, let's face it, punk rock was a genre that was formed on being different and trying new things. Um, and, you know, there's a billion offshoots of punk rock and you know a lot of those those words don't really mean anything post-punk and you know whatever uh to me it's all music it's all punk rock it's just offshoots of punk rock so uh when we started this band i had been previously playing in a couple pretty weird bands i did solo harsh noise stuff under the name humans are the worst invention 
Um, I was also playing in a psychedelic, noisy freakout band called Lunch with Beardo. Um, I also had a synth punk project called Dr. Scientist, which was uh, described very uh, accurately, in my opinion, as Gorilla Biscuits meets Kraftwerk in a mosh pit in the year 2030. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so I came from a background of a lot of experimenting in punk rock for many years. Um, and when we started F Spent Flesh, uh, Steve Firth uh, had started playing guitar with uh, a Cooper. Cooper is a drummer who plays with us. And Steve and Cooper had been playing together since high school in bands um, and hadn't played together in many years. And they started writing stuff in the basement and they really just kind of wanted to play fast music again. Um, so one day they asked me if I wanted to come down and, and yell into a microphone. So I said, okay. Um, and when we first started the band, um, you know, it's guitar, drums, vocals. It was very straightforward. And we, we really just wanted to play kind of like 80s hardcore. Uh, very straightforward, very fast, very in-your-face, uh, short songs. Um, but we also told ourselves pretty early on that we didn't want to limit ourselves too much. Um, we, when we started recording our first uh, record, which uh, is a 10-inch record we released, self-titled in 2012, probably, um, released that on FDH Records, another great Philadelphia label called Sit and Spin Records, who now also owns and operates a great record shop down on 9th and Reed. Um, Former interview subject as well. Oh, yes, Leora, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they helped us release it as well as P-Trash Records over in Europe. And when we started recording that record, um, being that it was just guitars and drums, we felt that there was, there was some parts that needed a little something extra. And we would do a lot of layering of guitars and, and different uh, recording tricks. Um, we also tried to not always do straightforward written songs when we went into the studio. We would kind of... Uh, give our drummer free reign and say, hey, just play something and we're going to record it. And then uh, myself and Steve, the guitarist, will bring it back to the house and experiment with writing around the drums. Um, so we, you know, we try to keep an open mind with our writing process. But basically, as we were recording that 10-inch, um, we felt that there was parts that we could get a little weird with and try some different things with. And myself, with my music background, um, I had a lot of weird gizmos. So I broke out my theremin and started laying some theremin down on some of the tracks on the 10 inch. Um, so, uh, and it kind of clicked. I kind of really liked what I was, what I was coming up with. Um, so basically we started as an eighties hardcore band, but we've incorporated a lot of unique instrumentation, um, into our, our structure. Um, we, we pay a lot of head nods to, different things that, that we like. And we're all coming from much different places. Myself, I'm, I'm a big, as I mentioned earlier, a big synth punk and power pop guy. So even though I'm the front man in a, in a fast, heavy band and I scream, mm -hmm. I tend to take a lot of cues from power pop um, and kind of bring that into the, the, the hardcore world. Uh, my guitar player, Steve, he loves uh, Swedish punk. He loves, you know, regulations and... and uh, Dean Dirk, he loves a lot of that European um, 
hardcore. Um, so he takes a lot of cues from that sort of stuff. But he also listens to a lot of other stuff. He listens to a lot of a lot of jazz and classical uh, around the house, and he listens to a lot of the records I put out. He's very open-minded musically. And our drummer Cooper, he's he's out there. I mean, he he's just got such great music tastes and. Cooper never stops surprising me with what he brings to the table. Um, you know, I, I think I've I've heard it all, and then Cooper will bring something out of the woodwork, and it's just wild stuff. So, you know, we all kind of draw from from influences, and basically, we wanna we wanna both play fast, crazy punk rock while paying our tribute to hardcore but not really limiting ourselves so we definitely like write songs that are very free jazz inspired um you know some of the bands that i i really draw influence from in the hardcore world are bands like void mm -hmm. um things like you know i obviously i love a lot of the classics like bad brains and uh, you know, discharge and a lot of you know your the, the things you would expect to hear. But I try to I try not to you know limit my influence to just one genre, and we try not to limit ourselves as a band, but at the same time make it make sense. We don't want to go too weird, mm -hmm. too freak out, too noisy, but we want to keep it interesting because that's what punk rock is. It's all about just you know kind of kind of doing what comes naturally and and you know if it doesn't sound like anything else cool cool it, it seems like unfortunately for some people the, the that the type of music has calcified over the years and become something that can't really go beyond 1982 so you've got a really strict form and then when bands deviate from the form they're considered by some to be outside of the scene they've moved into an avant-garde or a noise realm like that so it's interesting that you can incorporate these elements and still satisfy the people who want lightning fast aggressive music exactly and that's you know that's always kind of been the goal was to was to to you know bring bring something different in this scene and and move beyond as you said 1982 because to me you know i don't want to play in the same band that same style of songwriting that i was writing 20 years ago mm -hmm. it would just get stale it would get boring um, you know, I want to try different things. And luckily, Philadelphia, South Philly in particular, SPP, uh, South Philadelphia in particular is really um, taking us in. They really, they really understand what we're doing um, and are interested by what we're doing. And people, people like the fact, or at least I think they like the fact that, you know, we're a punk band, but we have a theremin and I use chaos pads and I use very unconventional instruments for punk rock or hardcore in our band. But I think that's what keeps a lot of people interested is that, you know, they, they know that we're not afraid to try new things, but they know that we take a lot of time to think out what we're writing and what we're trying to, we're, we're very conscious of, you know, not stepping outside of the punk rock world while pushing the limits of punk rock. Yeah, it doesn't come over as being contrived, like you've thrown in a weird element to show like we're crazy guys. Rather, it seems like it's you know it's incorporated into what an overall vision of what you're trying to present. To exactly, and and that's and that's exactly what it is. Is we just we just want to make music, and we don't want to make the same record over and over again. Mm -hmm. So you know we're not afraid to try new things, but we we stay grounded at the same time. Right. How do they go over in Europe? Uh, Europe was great. Uh, Europe, Europe 
was a very interesting experience. I would highly, highly recommend to anyone who has the opportunity to tour in Europe to do it. Um, I've toured the U.S. many times. And, you know, the U.S., touring the U.S. is fun. I've had a blast. I've made great friends doing it. But touring Europe for the first time was completely different. We were fortunate because we uh, have a relationship with a German label, P-Trash Records, and our new record, uh, our 7-inch Deviant Burial Customs, uh, came out on both P-Trash and Rockstar Records, which are both really great record labels over there. And uh, we were able to tour. We did a lot of Germany, um, but we also hit Denmark. We hit... Uh, Prague, Czech Republic, we hit Switzerland, we hit France. So we were able to hit a lot of countries um, and we were really well perceived. Um, I think we were we were hard to book um, because we, we played a lot of shows that we were kind of the oddball on. Um, we played, you know, we played some shows that were metal shows and we were, you know, faster than a lot of those bands. And then we played um, some shows that were like very straightforward punk shows, but everybody in Europe was very open-minded. Mm -hmm. um, you know, here in the States, we, we've all seen it, you know, and, you know, I'm guilty of it myself. I've gone to shows to see my friend's band and I'll watch my friend's band and then I'll go outside and, mm -hmm. or I'll go home early and I might watch three songs from this band. And you know, there's, there's bands that I have no idea who they are and I'll watch them straight through, but it's hit or miss. Um, over there, somebody goes to a show, they're watching every band. Um, you know, one, one standout show to me over there was we played in Hamburg and we played in Hamburg on a Sunday afternoon with a really great uh, band from Canada called Systematic. And it was just the two of us, two North American bands playing on a Sunday afternoon at a punk club in Hamburg. And there was probably 50, 60 people there watching us. And neither of our bands are that established, you know, it was just... People were like, oh, there's a show. I'm going to go. I'm going to watch these bands. And it was really, really great. And I mean, every single night you had a place to sleep. Every single night you had dinner. Was there and a giant bowl of spaghetti everywhere? Um, it was a lot of vegetarian food. It was it was um, a lot of curries, a lot of, you know, hippie rice and beans style dishes. But we were fed, um, you know. We were fed dinner and breakfast. Um, we had a place to sleep. We got a chunk of door money every single night. Even the night, the shows that weren't that good, people were like, oh, yeah, we kept money from this show that did really well, so here's 100 euros. Um, so, you know, every single night you were, you were really well taken care of. And, and it's the, it was the opportunity of a lifetime to be able to tour Europe, and I, I can't wait to get back over there. Um, the guys and I are already talking about our next trip, and, you know, we're discussing Europe again, and we're also talking about Japan um, that would be nice. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like to hit Japan at some point, but we got to get a record out over there first. Mm -hmm. um, but we learned a lot from it. We learned a lot about touring and how to do it smarter. Um, Did you the, have any problems uh, on the tour? The biggest problem we had, we've been we had been working with a booking agent for about a year to set this up, and uh, really great guy. He he really tried. He he did everything he could, but he books a lot of uh, a lot of poppier punk sort of stuff. He books a lot of actually the same time we were over there touring, uh, Mean Jeans were over touring, and he was also booking that tour. Um, so that was a little bit more of his his crowd. But anyways, he had been working with us. Uh, for about a year on the tour and about six days 
before we went over, we found out that the van that we were supposed to have blew up six months earlier. So uh, that was a, a major hiccup instead of, you know, spending... Nobody realizing all of that time that the thing was not operational? No, I guess I guess there was a miscommunication and the, the people who owned the van, they never wrote down our name, even though the booking agent reached out to them a year prior. So when the van blew up, they told everybody that had reservations for this van, but... I guess there was some cross lines and whatever happened, it you know, it didn't get found out till a week before we went over. So that was a major hiccup and you know, ended up costing us a good chunk of change to get a replacement van, quite a bit more than we, we planned on. But, you know, that's part of touring, you know, you 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 roll with the punches and let's face it, I mean, you know, playing playing in hardcore and punk bands, um, you you don't expect to ever make money touring, you know, you hope to break even. And for me, you know, I paid for my plane ticket out of my pocket and I put a couple hundred bucks into the van. But, you know, if I paid a thousand dollars to get to tour Europe for two and a half weeks, uh, I'm very happy with Did that. Did you buy a lot of cool records while you were there? Uh, not a crazy amount of records. Uh, and the main reason I didn't go overboard on buying records is I had brought over a huge amount of FDH records for distro. Um, and also had our records. So we just had a lot of merchandise already. Mm -hmm. And shipping between here and Europe is absolutely insane cost-wise. So I didn't want to ship too much back. So, of course, there was was a couple really great record stores that we were able to hit um, and that I had to buy a couple records in. I was in in Munster, got to visit uh, Green Hell Records, who is somebody I've sold records to from FDH for years, so it was cool to go in there and buy a record or two. Um, we got to spend a day off uh, barbecuing with the owner of a label called Red Lounge Records. And uh, Red Lounge is, I've always kind of considered the uh, European uh, answer to FDH records. We've released a lot of the same bands, Strange Attractor, Digital Leather, a um, couple others, can't think of them off the top of my head, but... Uh, when we were there, uh, we were swapping records. So it was like, oh, here's a stack of FDH releases you never got. Here's a stack of uh, you know, records from Red Lounge you never got. So between that and you know, seeing some bands and really liking them that we played with and buying their records, you know, I, I came home with a, with a sizable stack, more than I wanted to. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I guess we'll wrap up, but um, in closing, in looking at the Philadelphia scene, you know, you've traveled around the country and been to Europe and these other places. Anything in particular or that you want to note that makes the, the underground music scene in Philadelphia particularly unique or, or typifies it in, in some way? Well, you know, Philadelphia has a lot of different things going on, and that's what I love about Philadelphia. Um, you know, sometimes it's unfortunately a little segregated, you know, that we have the whole West Philadelphia scene and South Philadelphia scene. Do you um, feel that there's a, uh, any kind of a tension between the, 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 the different neighborhoods there or the, the sections of the city, rather? There, there definitely is. I would, say, I would say the two most dominant scenes in the Philadelphia scene would be West Philadelphia and South Philadelphia. Well, then how would you then describe South Philadelphia versus West Philadelphia, personally? Yeah, personally, yeah. Um, I would say that West Philadelphia is a lot more... Uh, artsy, a lot more experimental, a lot more PC, which it's funny because, you know, myself as somebody from South Philadelphia on FDH Records, I've released records for both Signals and The Bad Doctors, who are both really great West Philadelphia bands. So I love some of the stuff that's going on out there, um, where South Philadelphia is a lot more uh, punk, a lot more leather jacket, uh, you know, 
SPP is a term that's thrown around, South Philly punks. And the South Philly punks, they're, you know, they're what you would expect to see in punk rock. They, you know, there's lots of leather jackets and studs and, you know, drinking 40s and smoking cigarettes and, and really grimy, but, you know, great kids, great sense of community in South Philadelphia. It's just unfortunate that there's a great sense of community in West Philly and a great sense of community in South Philly, but they're they're two different monsters. And, you know, there's definitely common threads, and I think that there's bands that, that uh, bridge the gap, but unfortunately they do, for all intents and purposes, feel like two different scenes a lot of the times. Um, which, is, which is sad, but is also kind of cool, because, you know, myself being from South Philly, um, I can hop over to a show in West Philly and and see a group of people that I've never seen or, you know, play a show in West Philadelphia and play to people that we never see down at a South Philadelphia show and, and vice versa. It seems so strange within the same city, and especially considering that most of these people you're probably talking about aren't from Philadelphia. You know, they've all come from other places and kind of gone into this per- certain, you know, part of the city, maybe... Uh, identify themselves as being from that part of the city, but are not actually from Philadelphia. Right, yeah. right. That's that, that's yeah. just like me. You know, I'm I'm from South Philly, but I've only been here for eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but you know, South Philly is in my blood. But yeah, it's it's a city of transplants. I mean, I think a, a lot of people have moved into this city, and of course, there there are the locals that are born and raised here in Philadelphia. And, you know, let's face it, Philadelphia has a great history for punk rock. I mean, you you look back at. Uh, you know, the 1980, I mean, you had Why Die here, and, mm-hmm. you know, still to this day, Why Die just put out a, uh, I think Southern Lord just put out a killer 2LP set for Why Die, and they're still around doing stuff. Yeah, FOD's been around consistently. Yeah. Actually, the most consistent of the of the hardcore bands that have stretched, you know, from early 80s to the present. Absolutely. And, you you know, you look at you look at uh, the different the different things that have come up through the years. Look at R5 Productions, for instance. R5 grew from, you know, being, being, you know, very small shows into this this monster that they are today, which they're bringing through great bands on a regular basis. Um, so, you know, that's the beauty in Philly is that there, there's a lot of history for punk rock here and hardcore, but there's also a lot still happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of, every time you turn around, there's a, there's a new great place. You know, one of my favorites right now is The Pharmacy down in South Philadelphia, which is a really great little coffee shop. Um that also has shows on a regular basis and you know they also have like a little art gallery thing going on and and let's face it you know like punk rock isn't just music it's 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 a it's a lifestyle it's a you know and it's not necessarily always a lifestyle um it's more of a, a feeling and a heart to me you know mm-hmm. i i'm not somebody who uh you know i'm a married man who who holds a job and, and wears a suit every day but punk rock is in my heart you know like that that job is just a, a means to an end, so I can continue to do the things that I want to do. Um, you know, if I can make a living off of punk rock, trust me, I probably would. Um, but it's you know, at the end of the day, it's it's what's in my heart and what I love. And I think that you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of kids in the scene, um, whether it's in South Philly or West Philly or up in Fishtown. You considered the Roxborough punks too? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here. (laughs) Um, you know, but that's, that's just it coming from a a residential area in upstate New York. Um, it's, it's so exciting to see a, a, a city where there's so much different stuff going on. But at the end of the day, I think most people have a common, goal and a common cause which is you know let's let's keep music creative let's do what comes natural 
and let's have fun doing it. And that's, you know, that's really what it's all about, whether it's, and that's what it's always been about to me personally, whether it's in my band, doing FDH records, doing Suicide Bong, you know, whatever the case may be, to me, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, just getting it out there and having fun doing it. I think that is the absolutely perfect way to end the interview. So thank you uh, very much, Eric, for doing it. Thanks for having me, Joe.